It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. It was so much fun to realize that Sheila Drevna lives in the town where several of my children went to college so I can easily picture the places she talked about. And since my mom was born and raised near there, it was also fun hearing some of the names of places that my mom had talked about. After a serious illness, Sheila was so determined to get better that even her doctor told her she was different. Her tenacity was amazing and quilting became a way for her to push her limits. Now she has a long arm business teaches and lectures for quilt shops and quilt guilds, and then last year she began creating patterns. Sheila, I am so excited that I get to interview you on A Quilter's Life. Thank you for having me. Uh Uh-huh. Can you share how you found out about A Quilter's Life? Well, while I'm sewing, I always listen to things. And I started listening to different podcasts and looking around at different podcasts. And then I saw a couple people you've interviewed that I actually know. One was Claudia Porter and one was Stephen Cook. And I thought it would be fun to be interviewed. I have a little bit different story of my quilting life. So I thought it might be interesting and people would like to know about it. Oh, Sheila, thank you so much. It's such a blessing to have you reach out for me to interview you. Let's jump back to where were you born and raised? I was born in Swickley, PA. I've always lived right around this area. I grew up in Moon Township, which had a Coriopolis address. Moon Township is where the old Pittsburgh airport used to be. It is now in Finley Township. But when I grew up, it was in Moon Township. And we would go to the airport and watch the planes. They had a big observation deck back then that you could stand on and watch the runways. And it was fun watching all the planes come in and out. And the school district was a large school district, but it was very transient. People moving in and out. But I've always lived right around Beaver County, Allegheny County, right around that area. Like I mentioned to you before we started the interview, my kids went to Geneva College there in Beaver Falls, right near you. And it was so much fun to see the sign to Newcastle since my mom grew up in Newcastle. And it was fun to go up there quite often. So do you have any connection to the college? I don't, except I could walk to it. (laughs) I live in Chippewa Township, which is up on the hill, but it's only about a mile and a half, maybe two miles down to the college, if that. So I go past it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost wondering if I passed your house before. Probably. It's the road right by Sheets that comes up into Chippewa. It's a very busy road. So you've probably passed it if you went from Geneva College up to Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I did then. Is there anything else you wanted to share about your childhood? I had a really great childhood. 
My mom and dad were both from the hills of West Virginia, but they did not meet there. They met in Ambridge at a small steel mill. They left West Virginia to find employment. And then they met in Ambridge at a small steel mill. And I had two sisters older than me, 10 and nine years older than me. And they lived in a little area called Fair Oaks. And then they moved to Moon Township. And my mom and dad lived there when I was born. And they always encouraged me to be creative. They always encouraged me to try anything I wanted to try. I worked on cars with my dad a lot. <laughs> I think I was the boy in the family because my sisters were 10 and 9 years older than me. I had a brother that passed away at eight months before I was born. I love being outside. So I was always outside cutting grass, working on cars, riding my bike. It was a great little neighborhood. And I had a really good time growing up there in Moon. Now, as you grew up, did you go off to college or did you go right into the workforce? No, my mom and dad, my dad went to first grade and my mother went to third. Like I said, they were in the hills. My mother was the oldest of 13 and my dad was the youngest of eight. And their goal was for us kids to graduate high school. They did not see how I could have possibly went to college. I would have loved to have gone to college, but I did not have the guidance to show me how I could. So they offered a technical school in high school. And I took marketing and I worked at Gimbel's in downtown Pittsburgh when I was in 11th grade. I started working down there. I would go to school part of the day and I'd work down at Gimbel's. So I worked at Gimbel's even after I graduated. I worked there, you know, like three or four years. From there, I worked waitressing jobs. I owned a gift shop for a while. My sister and I owned a gift shop. It was a consignment shop type where we had like a hundred artisans. We had potters, weavers, quilters that would make wares and then we would sell them. Plus we sewed and made things. Then I met my husband, my second husband. I was married once before. I met my second husband and he was a shop teacher, technology teacher. He taught graphics, woodworking, silk screening and printing on an offset printer. So then by that time, let's see, I went from waitressing. I went to David Weiss at the mall, Beaver Valley Mall. And then I went from there, I went to the nuclear power plant. And then they started laying off. So when I got laid off, by that time we were married and I found a job where I would be off the summers. And that was with American Eagle Outfitters. And they had a catalog division where they just had a catalog from the fall till the spring. They would do two catalogs a year. It was like a fall winter catalog and a spring summer catalog. And I got a job opening the mail. And from that, I worked my way up to where after, I don't know how many years, maybe six years, I was supervisor of inventory for the chain. So I handled all the inventories for their stores and warehouses. And I really liked working with numbers. I didn't realize I would, but it was like an accounting type job. I really liked working with numbers. 
How fun for that to just show up and you realize how much you like doing it. I never did get the summer off with my husband, though. (laughs) I planned on it. I started in the fall and I thought, oh, next summer I'll be off with him. This is a great job for a teacher's wife. But by that time, I was supervisor of the catalog division. So I worked year round. I'm wondering how you managed that expectation. Were you very disappointed or were you okay with it? I was okay with it. I enjoyed working there. It was always something different, always something new. We had 800 phone lines. So I had phone operators there that I had to deal with. So there were always customer service issues, accounting issues. It was challenging and I like a good challenge. Interesting. So how did you end up in Beaver Falls? Well, we'll go back to working for American Eagle Outfitters. (laughs) (laughs) When I worked for American Eagle Outfitters, I was diagnosed with having lupus. My lupus was joint pain, severe joint pain. My joints would swell. I was so extremely tired. I would sleep anywhere. And when they diagnosed me, it's a process. and. I am sun sensitive. I have to be careful being in the sun. I break out in a rash, not so much now as before 2000, but low white blood cell count, fevers for no reason, low grade fever. So I was diagnosed and I would go on prednisone and I would feel great. Like one day I couldn't get into the office. I couldn't open up the office door because my joints hurt so bad. So I'd wait till someone opened up the door and I'd scoot in behind them. And then the next day I'd whip that door open because I'd be on prednisone and I would just whip it open, go flying in. The girls I worked with also knew that I was on prednisone because I would go to the cafeteria and I'd eat a lot (laughs) because prednisone makes you hungry. Well, in 2000, it was coming up on May, it was April, and we were getting things ready for inventory, processing stuff, very busy time. And May 1st of 2000, Sunday night, April, I went to bed. Monday was going to be May 1st of 2000. I was not in a flare with my lupus. I was fine. And I went to bed thinking I would get up the next morning and go to work. It was also my son's birthday, May 1st. I woke up at 2.30 in the morning with my hands and feet like they were in a fire pit. The pain was so extreme. And I was facing the clock, and that's why I know it was 2.30. I raised my arm up, and my hand just hung. I could not move it in any way. It was just extreme, extreme burning and pain. Pain like when you hit your funny bone, the pins and needles, and the burning pain. So I was very involved with the Lupus Foundation in Pittsburgh. And I had been to Harrisburg for funding. And I thought, this has to be my lupus. It has to be. There's nothing else I know that it could be. And I thought, okay, when something really strange, extreme happens, you don't think straight. So in my mind, I'm laying there and I thought, okay, my husband's going to have to get his sleep because tomorrow he's going to be panicking and he needs rest before he has to deal with this. And my doctor, he's going to you know, need rest because he's going to have to figure out what's going on with me. So I'll just wait a while. So I laid there in pain from 2.30 to about 6.30. And then I woke my husband up. 
And then all panic just went crazy. Eventually, we got a hold of the doctor. We got me to the hospital. Then they fought with the insurance companies. The insurance company wanted a diagnosis to admit me. And the doctor said, I can't give her diagnosis until I admit her and run some tests. So they fought back and forth for most of the day. Finally, in the evening, they gave me morphine and they admitted me and they started running tests. So from there, what they decided was that my antibodies, lupus is an autoimmune disease, and your antibodies will attack your body thinking that it's something that's not right. So my antibodies were crushing the nerves in my spinal cord, my motor and sensory nerves. So I have permanent motor and sensory nerves damage to my hands and feet. And during that time, once they had a diagnosis, they started two years of IV chemo, cytoxin. I had IV steroids. Then while I was in the hospital, I went blind during that time. All of a sudden, it just seemed like something got in my eye. And I told my husband, I said, there's something in my eye. I can't see real good. And he looked, he didn't see anything. So we told the nurse, they got the ophthalmologist in. And here, the lupus was attacking my eyes. So I was considered legally blind. They started doing steroid drops in my eyes every half hour. And that went on for quite a while. It went from every half hour, you know, it spread out further and further. But I came home after a month. I had occupational and physical therapy coming to my house in Ambridge. And we had a three-story house. The bedroom was on the second floor. So my bedroom was now in the living room. My husband slept most of the time on a couch. My potty chair was in the dining room. I had meals on wheels coming in. And I turned 44 years old while I was in the hospital. My birthday was while I was in the hospital. After a year living that way, I slowly, slowly started getting my eyesight back. At first, it was like I was looking through Vaseline. I could see like colors, but not really shapes or anything. And slowly it came back, very slowly. And now the ophthalmologists say that you can see very little damage in my eye now. Wow. Uh, it really is a miracle. They also thought that I would be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. In 2001, after we lived that way for a year, my husband said, I think we need to find a ranch house. So he started looking and we called a realtor. And she would set up houses for us and we'd go and look at, you know how Pittsburgh is, it's all hills. So you would get to the ranch house and there'd be like 20 steps getting down to the ranch house or 20 steps getting up to the ranch house. <laughs> I needed one like from the driveway right in. <laughs> and that's hard to find in the Pittsburgh area. So he finally found one in Chippewa and that's how we ended up out here. And it seems so far away. Now it's really building up and it doesn't seem that far away. But plus it seemed far away because I couldn't go anywhere. I was in an electric wheelchair and I used a platform walker learning how to walk in my house. I started using a platform walker in Ambridge. They built it for me at the hospital. I couldn't hold a walker. So it was tall and it had like a shelf with a cuff where I could slide my arm into because I couldn't hold the walker. And I would shuffle and I couldn't tell where my feet were because I couldn't feel them. And I would just shuffle around the house. And he goes, you're going to wear holes in a carpet. I said, I'm going to walk again. And I was determined. 
And my doctors used to always tell me, my rheumatologist, he would say, you're just different than other people. And I'd say, I don't understand. And he goes, a lot of people would just be satisfied being in a wheelchair. They're like, okay, this is my life now. And I said, well, why would they want to do that? (laughs) And he goes, that's what I mean. You're different. You're not satisfied with just being in a wheelchair. You're going to try to get better. I said, oh, yeah. You know, so I did lots and lots of therapy. They would tell me to do something 20 times. I would do it 100 times. I would do it all day long, just trying to get better. Wow. I always wonder when I go to do something like that and think, well, they said 10 times. I know I need to do the 10 times, but if I do 20 or 30, maybe that's too much and it will undo what I just did. You didn't think that way at all. I think I asked them, is it going to hurt me if I do more? And they said, no, you know, do what you can. And I remember one of my therapists, he came and I was laying in my bed and he told me, when you're laying here, you can just try to get your hands to move. Try to squeeze your pillow. Just try to squeeze the corner of your pillow. So if I was laying in bed, that's what I was doing. I was trying to squeeze the corner of my pillow. They gave me clay where I couldn't even hold the clay and they would have these big bolts in it and it was really soft clay and you would have to try to move your hands to get the bolts out of the clay. My hands, at one point, I remember telling one of my friends, you know how in a cartoon, like a cartoon character will get hit with a hammer on their hand and it gets real large and kind of goes in and out like, whoa, 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 you know, and it's real big. That's how my hands felt. They felt like they were cartoon hands. So huge. They felt really huge. But you couldn't touch my hands. You couldn't touch my feet. But I was just constantly trying to get better. I was just determined. What happened next? Well, this might not be a great story. You might think, well, that's crazy to do that. And it's kind of scary for the people that hear this, but it did happen. It was around 2004. I was able to walk. I was walking with a cane and we'd use my electric wheelchair when I went places like the zoo where I had to do a lot of walking. I was walking with a cane, but I still wasn't driving yet. They didn't take my driver's license away from me. So... (laughs) My husband was at work and I called my son and I said, hey, come on over here because I want you to go with me. He goes, where are you going? I said, I want to go to Walmart. And he said, you want me to take you to Walmart? I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm going to drive. I said, I want you to ride with me. (laughs) So he came over and I drove to Walmart and I drove back home. And I said, how did I do? He said, you did really good. I said, okay. I said, come back tomorrow. So he came back the next day and I drove to Walmart. And I did that on and off for like a month. And then I started driving a little bit further in Chippewa, but not outside of Chippewa. And after like a month at the dinner table, I told my husband, I said, I have something to tell you. And he said, what? I said, I've been driving. And he goes, what do you mean you've been driving? And I said, well, I'm tired of being locked up in this house. I said, I know no one out here. He goes, well, where are you driving to? I said, not really anywhere. I said, I don't want to go shopping. I don't need anything, but I don't have any friends. I don't have anyone to talk to. Everyone's still working. I don't know anyone out here. I said, I just drove over to Walmart and drove around and come home. Or I drive over around Chippewa and just come back home. I just need it out of the house. 
And then he rode with me and he saw that I did okay. And so that's how I started driving again. I'm picturing him, like you said, in the cartoon, coming up out of his seat. What? You've been doing what? (laughs) Yeah, he was really shocked. I had a truck. I thought he would notice that the truck had moved, but he never noticed. I pulled it in the same spot, but I thought he would still notice a little bit, but he never noticed. Not until I told him. (laughs) (laughs) Sheila, is there anything else you want to add about your family or... Anything else you've been through? I have a son and I have one granddaughter and my granddaughter is 22 and she has no interest in quilting. (laughs) (laughs) She is artistic, but no interest in quilting. Well, I guess we can't all be quilters because then we would have other people to make quilts for. That's true. If you had the opportunity to talk to your great, great, great grandchildren. What would you want them to know about yourself? Well, I'd like them to know I love learning new things. And I have tons of patience. It's just easy for me. It's easy for me. I can try something over and over and over and over again until I get it right or until I can do it. So I just never give up. And I love to dance and I love to laugh. Those are the things I think I would like them to know about me. That's really neat. And besides quilting, are there other crafts that you do or have done? I think most quilters have. (laughs) I've crocheted. I've knitted. This was a long time ago when my hands worked really well. I used to paint a lot. I don't paint a lot now, but I have an artistic edge to me. I used to do counted cross stitch. Even at work, I would sit and do counted cross stitch. I always sewed. My sister bought me my very first sewing machine when I was 10 years old. And my bedroom was very small and I had no table. So I would put it on the floor and I would press the foot pedal with my knee. I would sit cross leg and press it with my knee and I would sew. I had jeans that had all kind of embroidery on them because I embroidered and I'd sew patches. It was the 70s. I like gardening. I have a big flower bed in the front of my house. I like to garden. And when I was younger, I played an accordion, a 120 bass accordion. I took private lessons in my teen years. So those are some of the things that I've done over the years. The accordion's a fun instrument. I really don't know how I picked an accord. I think my dad worked with a man in the mill that gave private accordion lessons. And they worked out some kind of deal. We could rent an accordion and I could take lessons. And I don't know why. I don't know if he talked me into it or what. But yeah, I took accordion lessons for quite a few years. My oldest sister plays the accordion. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so we just don't run into many people that play that instrument, but it is fun. No, there's not very many accordion and and not very many lady or girl accordion players. (laughs) I never thought about that because as long as I could remember, my oldest sister knew how to play and her teacher was a lady. So, huh, that's interesting. Well, you mentioned gardening. Are there any other hobbies? We do like going to, there's not very many now auctions. 
there used to be the auctions that you could go to. Now they're all online, but we used to go to a lot of auctions and flea markets and yard sales. But now we could have an auction at our house because we have so much stuff. <laughs> I'm always picturing when people say what they do, because my next question is, do your hobbies somehow show up in your quilting? So I'm always picking something. How can an auction show up in quilting? I guess you can auction off quilts. You can. I've been to quilt auctions. But the other thing is my husband, his work and my work combine a lot of times. He's a retired technology teacher. So I mentioned before he was a woodshop teacher, taught silk screening, taught graphic arts. So his woodworking and my quilting sometimes ends up together. I'll give him quilt designs. He has a CNC router so he can router out designs. I've had him on my long arm a little bit, but he says that's my machine. But he has a two-story barn behind our house. It's all wood. So he has it loaded with wood. I have my sewing room loaded with fabric. And we don't complain about each other buying wood or fabric. (laughs) (laughs) But we do combine our things sometimes. It's fun to work together when you can. He made me a beautiful quilt rack in my living room. We went to Construction Junction in Pittsburgh where... They take buildings and they'll buy parts out of buildings or churches or, and they have like doors and shutters and windows and paint and sinks and bathtubs and just all kind of things. And they had wooden flutes from a wooden pipe organ. And we found two of the flutes that were very similar in size. And then he made me a wall quilt rack out of it. Oh, how neat. That must be beautiful. I just love it because it's so unusual. I like things that no one else has. (laughs) That's why I have a harder time following someone's pattern because I want my quilt to be so unique that there won't be another one around like it. I tend to be that way. I create my own or change things. And I can remember when I very first started quilting, I got a pattern And I bought all the fabric exactly what was in the picture on the pattern, the same colors. And then over time, you realize I can change all that. It doesn't have to be just like that. (laughs) Who introduced you to quilting or how did you start to quilt? This is a good story because my dad, like I said, was from the hills of West Virginia. And he left and he was in the service. And my grandmother. She passed away when I was six years old. But as long as I can remember, my dad had this crazy quilt that had a lot of satins and silks in it. And my grandmother had made it. And the story was that when he was in the service, she needed money. But she was too proud to just ask him for money. So she sold him the quilt. And he told me, I think it was $25, which way back then it was a good bit of money, I guess. And that quilt was always folded up in a closet, never used, never put out. And when my dad got older and he was in his 80s, he said, if you had anything in the house, what do you want? And I said, I want the quilt. So before he passed away, he gave me that quilt. 
some of the silk started fraying and I took very tiny tool and I cut pieces and hand stitched it over top of the silk to try to save it. But that was always, I don't know, just really special to me. So when I got sick and I needed something to do, I was driving my husband crazy, living in Chippewal, not being able to drive. And when I did drive, I had no place to go. I needed a challenge. I needed something to challenge my brain. And I thought, well, I've always sewed. I'm going to learn how to quilt. So there was a local quilt shop and I called the local quilt shop and I told them, I said, I have very limited use of my hands. I said, I cannot hand sew. I can use spring-loaded scissors. I cannot use scissors that have finger holes or thumb holes. I use the Fisker ones that are just straight handles. I can use a pencil with a big rubber adapter on it so I can hold it. So I think I could trace a template and I can sew by machine. I can't pin very well, but I can sew. And she goes, have you made anything? And I had made some jumpers for my granddaughter. I said, yeah. And she goes, well, bring it down and let me see. So she goes, you don't sew here. I said, oh, okay. So I took it down and I showed her and she said, you can do this. You sew, you make two blocks at home. You'll make 12 blocks. You make two blocks a month. You come in, I tell you how to do it. You go home, we use Marty Mitchell templates, trace the template, cut out your fabric, sew it together, bring it back. I'm like, okay, so she helped us pick out fabric and I took the quilting class. And then while I was there, I heard that there was a quilt guild and I thought, oh, there's ladies. (laughs) They can be my friends. So I thought, I'm going to join the quilt guild. So I joined the quilt guild. And I went to my first, and I hear this from a lot of people, not just because I think a lot of it was because I looked very sickly. I was huge, moon face, big round moon face from the prednisone. I mean, I just looked very sickly and I walked with a cane. So I went in, I sat down, no one talked to me. I came home, my husband said, so how did it go? I said, "Mm, no one talked to me. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going back next month. And I went back the next month. No one talked to me. I sat at a different table and I just kept going back and sitting at a different table. And I was determined some of those people are going to be my friends. (laughs) (laughs) So after a while, there was a group of us that all kind of joined around the same time. And we eventually found each other. And now the guild I belong to is the Beaver Valley Peacemakers Quilt Guild. And it has between 100 and 125 members on and off, you know, depending on the years. And there's all these little groups that get together. And there's about 10 of us that hang around together a lot. We go to little sewing retreats together in quilt shop ventures and things like that. But that's how I got into it. I figured I needed friends. So it's like, how do you find friends when you don't have kids? I didn't have any clubs or activities or anything. And I thought, how am I going to find friends again? And you have to actively search if you're wanting friends. You move to an area, you have to engage. So I thought, I'm going to learn something new. And it was very challenging for my brain. And it was very good therapy for my hands to work the scissors and try to hold pins and very good hand therapy for me. So now you can drive again in your quilting, but Are you still limited on what you can do with your hands and feet? Yes. I still have neuropathy in my hands and feet. I don't notice it. My neurologist told me that after 
years that it will be in the back of your brain. You won't really notice it. I notice it when I talk about it and it just comes to the forefront. And I notice I have pins and needles in my hands and feet. Normally, I don't even notice it. I have to walk by sight. I can't tell what my feet are doing. So if it's really dark out and I can't see the ground, I have a really hard time. The least little thing can throw me off balance and I'll fall. I have fallen everywhere. I've fallen in major stores. I've fallen in a restaurant and knocked over a table with people sitting at it. (laughs) I have fallen everywhere, but it's not as bad as it used to be. Uh, my falling. I'm more careful. And I know I have to walk by sight. I watch if there's an uneven pavement, if there's gravel on concrete, just the least little thing will throw me. My hands, my left side was affected worse than my right side. So my left hand does not open and close normally. And my thumbs on both hands are pulling back towards my elbows or my wrists, they're pulling way back. I cannot put my hands around anything round, a glass, a pop can, soda can, pop can here. (laughs) My thumbs do not stretch that far. I can't wear mittens and gloves. So winter is really hard for me. My thumbs are not where they're supposed to be. It would be kind of like you putting a rubber band around your hand and tightening it with your thumb and pulling it back and you can't stretch it out to put it around anything. So good friends of mine, they know to get me a coffee cup with a nice big handle because I can handle that with my right hand. I was left-handed. So I always wrote with my left hand and I always sewed with my left hand. I cut with my right hand. I would bowl right-handed. I would hit a ball right-handed. If I was mixing something in the kitchen, I would mix it for a while with my left hand. When that one got tired, I'd mix it with my right. And that used to drive my husband crazy. But it came in handy because now I have taught myself I can write with my right hand because that hand was better than my left. I still pick up my pencil with my left hand, but I can write well enough with my right hand that you can read it. But quilting wise, For me to put my quilts in quilt shows, I used to sew left-handed. So I sewed from left to right using my left hand. And I taught myself to sew with my right hand. And now I sew with my right hand. I automatically pick up a needle with my right hand and I sew from right to left now. And like I said, I'm a very determined person. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it's a quilt that you made or one that someone else made, do you have a favorite quilt? Or maybe that quilt that was your dad's, is that your favorite quilt? I would say that's probably my very top quilt. My favorite quilt is that one because I am very sentimental. So I would say that's my very favorite quilt. My second quilt that I made, it was paper piecing. We were having a workshop on paper piecing and it was a Judy Niemeyer pattern called Sunflower Illusion. I was laying in bed thinking, oh, I don't like those dark colors in that quilt. Oh, what am I going to do? I want to take the workshop. I want to learn how to do curved paper piecing. And I just kept laying here and I thought, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it really bright. So the background's all grays and whites, different shades, white on whites, grays, gray on white. 
the sunflower part where they had is orange, I have is aquas, and I called my quilt winter stars. And Linda McEwen, who is a good friend of mine, she quilted that quilt for me. And I don't know if you know Linda McEwen, but she's local here. She is a National Association quilt judge. And she also won $100,000 for a whole cloth quilt that she quilted. But she would never say anything about it. She's very modest, so she would not tell you. But we were all amazed. Her quilting is just beautiful. So that would be my second quilt. Oh, nice. Now, her name sounds familiar, so I probably have heard it, but I do not know her personally. You can look it up. The name of the quilt was called Bella. It was in one of the magazines. Nice. So with your limits, I assume you use a lot of tools. And do you have a tool that you are just so happy that you have? I was planning on this and I couldn't come up with one. I have three that I really use. Well, maybe four that I use all the time. Glue. I use glue basting a lot whether it's Roxanne's glue, Elmer's glue, because I have such a hard time pinning. At first, I used very big, thick pins. Now I try to use thinner pins because I have a little bit better grip with my hands, but it still limits me. So if I need two points to really match, I'll glue baste it in the seam allowance. I glue base binding to the back so the clips don't get in my way. I glue a lot of things and the glue base just washes out. The Martelli cutter, I could not rotary cut. I cannot use a regular rotary cutter. My husband found a Martelli cutter years ago when they very first started their business at a quilt show. And I have probably five or six Martelli cutters everywhere. The scissors, the Fisker scissors, I cannot use scissors that have finger holes. So that really limits me on the type of scissors I can use. Then the other thing that I use a lot is needle nose pliers. If I cut my thread too short and I need to pull it from the needle, I get needle nose pliers. If I have to rip out, I hold the thread with needle nose pliers because it's really hard for me to feel and hold the thread. So needle nose pliers I use, I have them all over my work area over by my long arm, by my sewing machine, everywhere. When I change my blade and my Martelli cutter, I use needle nose pliers for the blade. I'm too worried about cutting my hand trying to get the blade in, so I just use my needle nose pliers. That would be really good. I'm always afraid of cutting myself, but probably if you cut yourself, you wouldn't necessarily know right away. Right. It's weird because of the nerve damage. I used to not feel it at all. When they did the nerve conduction test on me, Everyone says those hurt. I couldn't feel anything. So there was no pain. So they were always worried about me getting blisters on the bottom of my feet, burning my hands, things like that. I can feel hot and cold now. I can feel some textures now. But when I do hurt myself, it's not necessarily where it's hurt at. I pinched my hand in a folding mirror one day and I didn't see where I pinched it. And I'm looking at my finger because I felt it on my finger, but here the pinch was way down on the palm of my hand. So the nerves are there, but they're not 
connecting in the right place. So I'm looking on my fingers and here it was real red and bruised down on my palm. Wow. Our bodies are amazing. It's amazing what you can recover from. Mm -hmm. Now the quilting process has so many steps. Do you like each step or do you like a particular step? I like all the steps, but my quilting friends all know that so with me, I hate doing borders because to do a border right, you should measure across the width at the top of your quilt, the width at the middle of your quilt, the width at the bottom, and then take the average and cut that piece just right. And it's just a lot of measuring and accuracy. And if not, then you get a wavy border. I tell my customers, you know, how to do it right. And when I do it, I do it that way, but I don't like doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So some of my quilts, I'll just not put borders. That works too. It does. And modern quilters, a lot of them don't have borders. So I don't do a lot of modern quilting, but it it could be there. I mean, I just don't like borders. Hmm. Share your worst quilting experience. Well, I've had many over the years, but my very first one that happened to a quilt that I was getting ready to enter in a quilt show, it was a wall hanging and I was trimming it after it was quilted and my ruler slipped and I sliced off the top corner of my quilt. Not all the way off, but enough of it. And I looked at it and I thought, no, what am I going to do? You know, my hand just slid and it just whacked it right off. So I looked at it for a while and I thought, well, I could angle that. So I got out freezer paper and, and I designed a curvy type edge that would come to a different kind of point on each corner. And my negative, when I entered it in the show, became a positive because the judge said it was a good edge design on my quilt (laughs) there's usually ways to fix things that go wrong you just have to think a little bit if there's a hole you put something over it applique something stitch something just all kind of things you can use markers sometimes say that white thread shows up you're on black fabric If you're using two colors you can mark it out with a black marker there's ways of fixing things you just have to Take time and think about it a little bit. Yeah. And it's always fun when you have that aha moment. Oh, I can do this. Yes. (laughs) Now we all have our 24 hours a day and we could do anything we want with them. Why do you think you continue to quilt rather than do anything else that you want to do? I think I need a creative outlet. I've always been creative somehow. And I just enjoy the creating. And I also enjoy meeting people. And I need girlfriends. I need friends. So I think all of that, the quilting community is very creative. There's always something new to learn, always something new coming out. And when you meet a quilter, you just have something to talk about. You just bond. You walk in a quilt shop, everyone's talking to each other. You walk in other stores and they're not. So I think I need the community. I need the friendship. I need 
the creativity. Those are the creative outlet. I like working in the fabrics. I like to touch the fabrics and work with fabrics. Yeah, I think everybody will resonate with touching those fabrics and even just looking at them. I can waste so much time just looking through fabrics. Yeah, I think we all do that. And I have a huge stash. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you make your quilts for? I've made them for my granddaughter, my son, you know, family members. Now I've been making a lot of class samples and I make a lot for quilt shows. And I tell my husband, I'm like an old Amish lady. Our spare bedroom has stacks and stacks of layers of quilts. Are you working on a special project right now? I am. I started designing patterns. That came about, I decided I wanted to learn how to do collage quilts. I like art quilts. So I decided I would like to do a collage quilt. So I made a simple poinsettia and holly quilt. And I posted it online and people started asking me for the pattern. Well, I didn't have a pattern. I said, no pattern, you know, so they kept asking me. So I decided I, I guess I should write a pattern up. So I wrote a pattern for that. Then I did a pumpkin and I call it pumpkin patch. And they're small collage quilts, like I think 11 by 17. They're great for beginners. They're not overwhelming when you open it up to start it. So I started teaching workshops. So well, now I'm working on my third pattern. I have it partially drawn. It's going to be a Valentine when I'm doing the holidays because these are small. And if you do it for a wall hanging, you can change it out for the season. They're easy to make. They're quick. They're not overwhelming. And I've been teaching. So the next one will be the Valentine's Day one. So far, it's coming along. It's like a double heart. I don't know what I'm going to call it yet. It's a double heart with a ribbon. And I like to make my collage patterns kind of three-dimensional looking to give you some depth perspective. And then I actually draw out the pieces and tell you where to put your darks, mediums, and lights. So it'll give you that look. Have people asked for specific fabric choices or are they fine with doing the dark, medium, and light? They're fine with doing the dark, medium, light. I tell them to use, you know, a variety of size of of prints, small prints, large prints, medium prints. And they like to be able to know where to put the darks and the mediums and the lights. So it gives you that dimensional look to it. If I teach a workshop, I go over a little bit about color theory and tints and shades and how to create depth. It's good to know. Describe your sewing area. Well, my sewing area started in a spare bedroom. I had part of it. My husband had the other part. And then it got to be too much. And I started being able to walk up and down steps. So we moved my sewing area down to the basement. I don't particularly like being in the basement because there's just no windows. But I have three quarters of the basement is my sewing area. So it's very large but it's very full. (laughs) I have cabinets top and bottom that my husband, the shop class that he used to teach in that school was torn down and he purchased his cabinets out of his graphic arts room. So those are my cabinets. He got me a large drafting table. That is my cutting table. 
It has a drawer in it. And he got me a library table that's my sewing table. And I have my long arm down there. I have a design wall. There's cupboards that I have full of batting. And all the other cupboards are just full of mostly fabric. My one bottom cupboard has a lot of extra things like paints and pencils and more art stuff. It's always great to find new uses for cabinets and other things that will probably just be thrown out if he hadn't gotten them. Yeah, I love the drafting table. It's the right height for me. It's tall. I'm tall and it's tall and it's very convenient. The other quarter of the room he has, he has a desktop computer, but he also has a laser engraver. And we both use the laser engraver. I have tried laser engraving fabric, talking about combining our likes. And I've engraved on fabric on denim. So it's kind of fun. Engraving on fabric, doesn't that just cut it through? No, you can adjust the speed and the, like the brightness of the light, I guess you would say. So you can do it so it'll just cut the top layer, like you could do velvet that way denim. If you Google laser engraving denim, you'll see a lot of industrial machines in China engraving jeans. Interesting. Well, share a quilting tip. Okay, this is my favorite tip. And when I go do a lecture, I take one with me and they all wonder why I have it. A toilet brush. Go to the dollar store and get a toilet brush. It's cheap, but to get thread up off the carpet, it's the easiest way to get thread off the carpet before you start sweeping. I used to hate cutting thread out of the brushes of my sweeper, but now I use my toilet brush. I don't have to bend all the way over. I just swish it across the floor. And then when it gets full, you can just pitch it out and get a new one. Huh. I've never heard of that before. How did you come across that? I don't know how I came across it. I just knew that I needed to get the threads off the floor before I swept. I don't remember. I've been doing it for years. (laughs) And I made an Instagram reel. And that reel has more hits than anything else that I've made. (laughs) So describe how you went from having quilting as a hobby and it became a business for you. I always wanted a long arm, but I thought I couldn't afford one. I would go to quilt shows and I would play on the long arms and it was just so much fun. It was like drawing with thread. And I thought, oh, I want one of these. So I'd sit at night and this was quite a few years ago. Craigslist was really still real big. And I would put how far away would I drive to go get a long arm? Oh, I might drive to New York. So I'd put in some city in New York and I'd look for a long arm. I'd put in all around here, look for a long arm. I would put however far I thought I would drive. Well, here I found a used long arm in Allison Park, which is just outside of Pittsburgh, like mm, 40 minutes from my house. And I bought that long arm and I had it for a year. It was an old handy quilter 16 on a wooden table with double face tape that held the rails down. And I played on that long arm for a year, quilting my quilts. And a few people would let me try to quilt their quilts with pantographs. So I told my husband, I said, I really want a long arm, a good one. 
and he was building his barn. And I said, can we lump that in the loan for the barn? He said, sure. So I said, okay. So we started looking what kind of long arm I would get. And I told him, I said, I want a computerized one because I want to be able to pay off my long arm. I was determined I was going to pay off the long arm that I got. I said, I can quote for people and pay off my long arm. So I want a computerized one so I can do edge to edge. And I ended up with a handy quilter fusion with Pro Stitcher. And I purchased that and I started learning the program. So I learned the program. And when I, a couple years ago, let's see, three years ago in the summer, I opened my business. My husband and I have a business called Wood and Fabric Barn. He had started the wood part. And I said, let's name it Wood and Fabric Barn because eventually I want to have a business. But I didn't particularly like that name, but I could use under that name. So he started the business and then I opened up Long Arm Love Quilting doing business as three years ago. And that's what I go by is Long Arm Love Quilting. The Long Arm Love Quilting. What was your thought process in coming up with that name? That was no thought process at all. (laughs) My friend and I, we were doing a local art walk in Beaver, PA. It was called Art Walk and they had artisans come and set up. So my husband took some of his woodworking stuff down and I took a featherweight sewing machine. And I thought that would draw people in an old sewing machine and I would have it running and sewing. And my friends who are younger than us came and said, oh, you need to post this on Instagram. And I'm like, I don't understand all that hashtag stuff. I said, I'm older than you. I don't understand this hashtag stuff. She goes, you would just hashtag Beaver Artwork. Take a picture and hashtag it Beaver Artwork. I'm like, okay. But she goes, you need to start an account. I said, well, what do I do for the account? She goes, you don't want to use your own name. You need to come up with a name. I'm standing there and I said, well, I love my long arm. So let's name it Long Arm Love. So I just started an Instagram account, Long Arm Love. But then what happened was, I started getting all these followers and I had way too many followers to change the name. (laughs) At one point I thought about it, but I'm like, no, I have all these followers now. So I'm stuck with this name, but I get comments that people like it, but I do a lot more than long arm. Really. I'm not a great free motion long armor. So it sounds like maybe I am because of long arm love. I'm getting better, but I do so many customers quilts edge to edge. I really don't have a lot of time to practice my free motion, but that's the name and it's sticking. (laughs) (laughs) Some of those decisions we make in just a second stick with us, don't they? That one sure did. (laughs) So you got your long arm and you started professionally quilting for others. Do you remember when that first person came and brought their quilt to you for you to long arm? Well, some of my friends brought me their quilts before I became a business. I thought, boy, they're very trusting, you know, and it was nerve wracking because you're always worried about if they don't like it when you're done quilting it or the density of the design they pick. Some people like their quilt quilted really dense and some of them really loose. So. I worry about things like that. I try not to stress as much as I used to, but I think they were very trusting to come to me as a new quilter. 
And those friends are really good friends. Yeah. And you touched on creating patterns. Do you remember when your first pattern sold and how exciting that was? The first pattern I created was the poinsettia and holly one. And how that came about, I did it for myself. I contacted a local quilt shop in Canfield, Ohio. It's only about a half hour from me because where Beaver Falls is, we're real close to West Virginia, Ohio, real close. Canfield, Ohio, I told her that I could teach collage quilting and she goes, well, if you can do something for Christmas. So I did the poinsettia. I just drew it up and I wanted to do it. And then I taught the class. That was exciting. I was, oh, there's people taking this class. This is fun, you know. But I really didn't have a pattern like to sell at a store. I gave them the pattern and they could use it, but there was no directions because they were getting it from me, the directions. So once I put the pattern together and people started wanting it, that was exciting. Every time I sell a pattern, I'm excited. Even if it's just one pattern, I'll say, oh, someone bought a pattern on Etsy or on my website. I think it's on my website now. The patterns are instead of Etsy, it's on my website. But I just had a store call that ordered patterns. And I'm like, oh, I told my husband, I said, I'm so excited. I, I have to go get some more printed. I have patterns. I'm selling patterns. And I only have two patterns right now. But it's so thrilling. And it's so exciting. And it's so much fun to see the people in the classroom, what their interpretation of my pattern is and how they turn out. I taught a class over in Worcester, Ohio at the quilt show there. And there was a 14-year-old girl and she was making her pumpkin patch with a blue pumpkin. So you just never know how someone's going to interpret your pattern. It's really fun. It's really fun to watch. It is. Sheila, where can we go to find your business? I have a website, longarmlove.com. On Facebook, Long Arm Love Quilting. I'm also on Facebook with just my name, Sheila Drevna. I have two Facebook pages. The Long Arm Love Quilting is my business page, but I do post both places. I have Instagram, Long Arm Love. We have an Etsy shop. There's always a little bit in the Etsy shop on and off, especially around Christmas time. We have things in there. It's Wood and Fabric Barn. And I also have some YouTube videos. I'm not great at recording my YouTube videos. I need to record more. And I found out in YouTube that you need to do long videos to get viewing time. I was doing little short clips, which I like because I just get to the point and it's done with like 10 minutes, but you don't get anything from YouTube for doing that. So my YouTube videoing has to get better, but you can find some videos there. Oh, great. Now, long arm love, is that love? L-O-V-L-U-V-L-O-V-E? Oh, that's a good question. L-O-V-E. Okay, great. Well, Sheila, thank you so, so much for joining me on A Quilter's Life. Thank you. It's been fun. Goodbye. Goodbye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. 
please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.